Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Monday, November 15th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, Zillow is out of the iBuying game. What does that mean for its competitors and for the future of real estate? Plus, a look into the human library. And astronauts aboard the International Space Station were forced to take shelter in their return ships this morning due to oncoming space junk. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So a little bit ago, I got sent a TikTok from a Las Vegas-based realtor who, without exactly naming names, accused that one app that many of us constantly frequent despite our better judgment as using our data to manipulate the price of real estate. As Input Mag summarized the TikTok quote, Sean Gocher offers a hypothetical situation in which a real estate tech company could buy up 30 houses in an area of high buyer interest at $300,000 and then buy a 31st home at $340,000. Doing so would reset the going price for homes in a given area at a higher level, including the 30 previously bought, potentially netting the company an additional $1.2 million dollars. The realtor first noticed iBuyers entering the Las Vegas market a few years ago, before the pandemic hit. They then begin offering incentives in certain zip codes that they've deemed hot areas. They use all the data they've accumulated to hyper-focus on an area, he says. In any negotiation, the person with the most data is always going to win the negotiation. End quote. An iBuyer, by the way, stands for Instant Buyer, and is a company that will buy a seller's home, usually in cash, based on its estimated value. They'll then sell the home themselves, saving you all that work. Sometimes the amount you get is less than if you went the traditional route, but again, it saves you a ton of work, and you usually get an all-cash deal. Gulcher says he and his real estate peers, especially out in the southwest of the U.S., have been trying to sound the alarm about the pitfalls of iBuying for years, but it wasn't until his TikTok got millions of views across multiple platforms that many everyday people became aware of it. But now, earlier this month, Zillow, one of the most well-known real estate browsing apps and iBuyer players, announced they'd be shuttering their iBuyer arm, Zillow offers, cutting a quarter of their workforce due to the unpredictability in forecasting home prices. Which says a lot coming from a company whose Zestimate was supposed to be the most powerful algorithm in the iBuying world. Quoting Wired, Launched in 2006, the highly touted algorithm had been trained on millions of home valuations across the U.S. before it was put to work estimating the possible price of property Zillow itself bought. In theory, it was a natural confluence of two things, Zillow's expertise in pricing homes and a new method of buying properties that relied on accurate estimates. For three years, it worked, according to John Wake, who has been a realtor and real estate analyst around Phoenix since 2003. In that time, he's seen the market collapse several times, including during the 2008-09 financial crisis, set off by the problems with subprime loans. But he's never seen anything like the past 18 months. I don't know anybody in the spring of 2020 who predicted the market would do what it did, he says. No one foresaw it would take off and become so strong. In March 2020, pretty much all activity in Phoenix's housing market stopped as the world shut down and economic uncertainty reigned. By October 2021, sales had dramatically accelerated, including among iBuyers. End quote. 
and that whiplash behavior of the market hasn't given Zillow enough lead time to accurately forecast. They need roughly three to six months to fix and sell homes that they buy. Zillow co-founder and CEO Rich Barton said in the announcement that this year's second quarter, they sold homes for 5.8% more than expected. But in the third quarter, they sold them for 5 to 7% less than expected. They still stand by their algorithm, though I have to wonder if the pandemic practice of browsing houses you can never afford and places you'll never live has messed with it a bit. See Saturday Night Live's Zillow sketch as evidence of how mainstream this trend has become. Link in the show notes if you missed it. But the problem is, to make a profit, their estimate has to be even more accurate than it is, within just a few thousand dollars, and that is simply not the case at the moment. Tomas Piskorski of Columbia Business School, who's also a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research, told Wired that Zillow's troubles with iBuying weren't just a cause of the pandemic and its ripple effects of inflation concerns, a changing demand for housing, and a shortage of contractors to help with flipping. He says Zillow also went beyond the low-hanging fruit of cookie-cutter houses and started taking bigger risks on complex and or lower-quality homes, even as other iBuyers like Redfin and Open Door slowed down due to the volatility of the market. Most iBuyers stick to places with similar houses because it's easier to get consistent estimates on a neighborhood of houses that are all almost exactly the same. That's part of why Phoenix, Arizona, where there are lots of newer cookie-cutter developments, is a hotbed for iBuyers, and places with older, very unique homes like in New England are less popular. But does Zillow ceasing their iBuying operations signal good news for competitors? An end to this trend overall? Or were iBuyers never much to be concerned about anyways? And despite Gotcher's fears as expressed in his viral TikTok, Piskorski says that iBuyers are involved in less than 10% of all interactions in Phoenix. And Redfin Communications Manager Alina Tuzinski says that their iBuyer arm accounts for just 0.01% of all homes sold in the U.S. in the second quarter of this year. But despite the fact that iBuyers may not be a huge blip yet, Gotcher says he and other realtors feel a storm brewing. And Piskorski in Input Mag earlier this year compared it to Amazon, quote, I'm old enough to remember when Amazon started as a bookstore and was losing money for several years at the beginning of their operations. It's a very similar situation for iBuyers right now. They're still losing money, end quote. And Zillow didn't manage to turn it around. But could the others? And to be clear, the concern is the alleged sort of artificial valuing of home prices, which is in part calculated by the data some of these companies have from users of their apps and websites. So people selling their homes to iBuyers might be getting cheated out of additional money they could have made if they'd gone the traditional route, and sellers might be paying more than they would have if the market hadn't been toyed with. All of the iBuyer companies, of course, deny any market manipulation is at play, but realtors like Gotcher and some individuals who sold their home to an iBuyer and then kept an eye on the iBuyer sale of the home afterwards aren't so convinced. But with Zillow out of the game, we'll see what happens. Redfin CEO Glenn Kelman told analysts that iBuying is not going away. But he also noted that they've avoided some of the traps Zillow fell into by not relying solely on their algorithms. They have two layers of human governance on top of their software, which slows down the process but helps them avoid any bad moves. And like Zillow, iBuying isn't all that they do. Zillow as a company, and many a millennial's favorite app, is still very much around. 
They just aren't going to buy your house from you anymore. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000. If you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. For the last two decades, a Danish experiment has been quietly spreading around the globe. It's called the Human Library. And it's kind of just what it sounds like. Instead of borrowing books, you borrow people. Well, okay, it isn't exactly as nefarious as that sounds. All of the people are volunteers. And nothing more salacious or dangerous happens than a bit of conversation. Although, in some cases, in my opinion at least, danger could still be lurking. The concept is that two people with opposing viewpoints or from different backgrounds who would not usually speak to one another are paired up in a special dialogue room for, ideally, judgment-free discussion, the borrower being welcome to ask the book many questions that would usually be deemed rude, taboo, or offensive to ask. It's kind of like the original meaning of a safe space, you know, not a space that's bubble-wrapped and coddles its inhabitants, but rather a space where people are agreeing they can breach tough subjects and do the messy work of healing or growing together. Now that said, I tend to be a bit leery about any initiative claiming to put unlikely pairs together for discussion, as if that simple discussion will heal all of society's problems and casually ignoring the power imbalance that comes when one person is coming to the discussion with an opinion to debate and the other is simply bringing who they are and the fact of their existence. And to me, it's a precipitous matter of safety that isn't often readily considered by the founders of these projects. But founder Ronnie Abergel seems to take that into consideration. He recognizes that these types of conversations can easily become heated or unproductive, which is exactly why he created a structure and space for them. And one thing that helps is that everyone who's taken part in the human library is a volunteer. You know, no one's being pressured into this. On the book side, they know what they're getting into in wading into a discussion with someone who may be ready to levy disrespectful or invasive questions at them. And on the borrower side, they probably have at least a bit of an open mind if they're taking part in this project. And as I said, the Human Library has been running in dozens of countries and across schools, businesses, festivals, and other events for 20 years. So it must be doing something right. In a recent CNN profile of the organization, human books are shown to be Muslims, members of the LGBTQ plus population, Satanists, people with extreme body modifications, wheelchair users, alcoholics, people who have been unhoused or sexually abused... Abergel describes the books as anyone who is stigmatized or unconventional. A Danish human rights activist and journalist, he founded the organization after studying abroad in the U.S. and seeing how partisan the political climate was becoming. He told CNN, quote, 
I had a theory that it could work because the library is one of the few places in our community where everyone is welcome. Whether you're rich or poor, homeless or living in a castle, professor or illiterate, it's truly the most inclusive institution in our time. End quote. On the Human Library's website, they continue the book-themed language, which is fun if perhaps giving a slight tone of reducing the stigmatized or unconventional people to mere objects, with language like, we've published books in over 80 countries. And in response to an FAQ about accessing care while working as a book, quote, Our friendly librarians and your book depot manager are always there to help you and make sure you're kept in mint condition, end quote. Overall, it seems like an organization that is doing genuine good in a world increasingly siloed and reactionary. And despite my hesitance, I do know that a good conversation and even just exposure to a story unlike your own can do a world of good in building bridges and opening minds. And if anything, their branding is certainly provocative enough to get people's attention. I'll give them props for that. Well, I've talked about it a lot on this show, and now we are starting to see more and more concrete issues arising from it. Space litter. Quoting NASA, More than 27,000 pieces of orbital debris, or space junk, are tracked by the Department of Defense's Global Space Surveillance Network, or SSN, sensors. Much more debris, too small to be tracked but large enough to threaten human spaceflight and robotic missions, exists in the near-Earth space environment. Since both the debris and spacecraft are traveling at extremely high speeds, approximately 15,700 miles per hour in low-Earth orbit, an impact of even a tiny tiny piece of orbital debris with a spacecraft could create big problems, end quote. And the aging International Space Station is, per science alert, the most vulnerable target due to its size and perpetual human occupation. And as Slashgear points out, in the ISS's 23-year tenure, it's had 30 close calls with orbital debris. But three of those all happened during 2020, and now we're at at least two for this year. Early this morning, astronauts on the International Space Station had to take shelter in their transport ships as the station itself passed by some orbital debris that came too close for comfort. And literally, as I was editing this story, the Pentagon held a press conference explaining more of what happened. You know, while I was writing it this morning, we had only so far heard from Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. We had not yet heard from NASA or any U.S. governing bodies, so I am just going to quote at length here from The Verge. This morning, Russia destroyed one of its own satellites with a ground-based missile, creating thousands of pieces of debris that have spread out into Earth orbit, according to the U.S. State Department. The U.S. has identified at least 1,500 trackable pieces of debris from the event and many thousands of smaller ones that cannot be traced, Ned Price, a spokesperson for the State Department, said during a briefing. The news comes amid reports from Russia's space agency Roscosmos, independently verified by The Verge via NASA's live feed, that the astronaut living on board the International Space Station had to shelter in place this morning due to a cloud of space debris that seems to be passing by the station every 90 minutes, the time it takes for the ISS to orbit the Earth. NASA has yet to confirm if the debris field passing the ISS is the same one created by the Russian anti-satellite or ASTAT test, and the agency did not immediately respond to request for comment. However, the State Department indicated that the debris field is a danger to the space station. This test will significantly 
significantly increase the risk to astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station, as well as to other human spaceflight activities, Price told reporters. Russia's dangerous and irresponsible behavior jeopardizes the long-term sustainability of our space and clearly demonstrates that Russia's claims of opposing the weaponization of space are disingenuous and hypocritical. And continuing from The Verge, ASTAT tests are often considered political moves that showcase a nation's capability of taking out satellites. But they're a source of concern for those in the space agency because of their propensity to cause giant fields of satellite fragments. These fields of debris can span many miles, jumping into higher and lower altitudes. The resulting debris pieces often vary wildly in size, and they can sometimes stay in orbit for years, threatening functioning satellites. End quote. And for more background on what exactly happened this morning, quoting Space.com, NASA, Roscosmos, and their partners regularly monitor a safety perimeter around the space station that's shaped like a pizza box and extends just over 15 miles around the space station and half a mile above and below. Station officials often move the space station to dodge debris coming into that zone if enough time allows. That occurred last week when debris from a 2013 Chinese anti-satellite test passed near the station on November 10th. According to a live audio feed from the International Space Station, the facility's most recent encounter with the debris field occurred at about 9.50 a.m. Eastern and lasted about six minutes. Details are sketchy, space journalist William Harwood of CBS News tweeted, but the seven-member crew of the ISS took refuge in their Soyuz MS-19 and Crew Dragon Endurance spacecraft earlier today as a precaution due to a predicted close pass to or through a debris cloud resulting from a satellite breakup. End quote. Taking refuge in their transit ships is a standard procedure, Space.com notes, as it would aid in swift evacuation in the case of an emergency. The astronauts returned to the rest of the ISS, leaving their return ships after the first few debris passes this morning. Now, the story is definitely still developing, more than I realized when I first saw it this morning, but the big takeaway for me is that so-called space junk is becoming a serious problem, especially when it's created kind of intentionally. All right, well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.